0: So they endure all of this and they get to the promised land. Do you understand the promised land? This is what they're looking forward to. They're looking forward to this land where they can start a new life. And be free so they can worship God. All of this is motivated by freedom to worship God the way they want to worship God. And they get here and they get here at the wrong time of year. And it's going into winter. And they don't know anything about winter. Do you understand? Winter in England is it rains and it's chilly. Winter here is it snows and it kills you. How many of their children and family members did they lose the first winter? Do you know how many? 50%. So after the first winter in Gloryland, you've lost your brother, your sister, maybe you've lost your mother, your father, maybe you've lost two of your kids, maybe you've lost three of your kids, and you make it to spring and your family's half the size it was. And then the next winter they lose another 50%. There's hardly anybody left. This has been an unmitigated disaster. So they decide they need a day to express themselves. If after two years like that, you had a day where you could say to God what you want to say to God about your circumstances, what would you call that day? I would call it National Self-Pity and Complaint Day. Or maybe, why me day? Or how about, Christianity isn't working for me anymore day? So what do they do? Thanksgiving day. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Excuse me? What exactly do I have to be thankful for? I've just lost half of my family and my friends. And it's not looking much better for the future. And they decide to commemorate these first few winters with Thanksgiving. You know, this spirit-led churches are so, so annoying. Yeah, Gary, no, just take over my whole message.
1: I, um, as he, you know, he's, you painted a really neat picture of the first Thanksgiving. And there's a, there's a piece that I don't know, you know, I, I just recently learned this. But it, it really speaks to how God was involved in this Thanksgiving. And um, I don't know, it's probably 15, 10 to 15 years before this event took place. A ship came to America. And there was a real evil guy that was the captain of the ship. And he grabbed 25 Indians, young Indian people, and he took them off to slavery. Have you heard this story? And uh, one of them is named Tesquanto. And he takes him down to Spain and he sells, he's trying to sell him off for slavery. And the uh, friars, the monks, get Tesquanto away and they bring him into the monastery. They teach him about Jesus. He becomes a believer. They teach him about their farming methods. He wants to go back to his native land. He wants to go back to his tribe. So they they send him to England. He gets connected with this wealthy guy who wants to come to America to prosper, but he needs a translator. So now Tusquanto speaks Spanish and English and his native tongue, they send him, They bring him back to America, to Squanto, who we call Squanto, who's a believer, who then connects with these pilgrims and becomes the interpreter and connects them with the Indians so that they can learn how to survive. That was God's provision before they even got here. Well, oh, now you want to take me? <laughs> I know, I didn't want to go. Preparing.
0: Is there anyone else who'd like to st- share stories this morning? Because... <laughs> Sit. So what the enemy meant for evil, God turns around and uses it as one of the most powerful gifts to His people who come here.
1: Yeah.
0: And then the enemy's really happy because he killed half of them in the first winter. And their response, rather than whining and complaining, is Thanksgiving Day. All these attacks being turned around by their choice to be thankful rather than to complain. Why did they do it? Why did they decide, we're going to call this Thanksgiving Day after everything that they had suffered? I think the My understanding, the key for my understanding, is the motivation that brought them there in the first place. They are absolutely, completely sold out to God. Their reading of Scripture taught them this. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. There it is. They were a people of the word. They were radically committed to God. Their worldview, their understanding of their circumstances, was not dictated by their circumstances. Their understanding is dictated by their faith. And the book tells them very plainly, give thanks in all circumstances. So they did it. They institutionalized Thanks. And it wasn't hard to institutional thanks in their community because their whole community believed the same things. It wasn't tokenism, it was an honest expression of who these people really were with God. It had integrity. And it wasn't wishful thinking and it wasn't wearing rosy glasses. They knew what their circumstances were, but they chose to react as Christians to their circumstances. And we have this tradition today because of that intense commitment that they had to the kingdom of God and to His Word. (laughs) Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Are there any harder words to hear when your life is in the toilet? John spoke, you guys, about the canons. He mentioned you guys last week, and I remember those days. And I remember, Nathan, the hardest thing that you expressed to me was, what's the purpose of this? Why is this happening? All these questions that we have about the goodness of God in the face of things that aren't good. You know, we're tempted to believe one of two lies. Either he doesn't love us enough to fix this, or he's not powerful enough to fix this. See, logic says you can't have an all-powerful God and an all-loving God at the same time, given the circumstances we live in. He's got to be either not strong enough or not loving enough. The devil wants you to choose one or the other. And it doesn't matter which one you choose. It will work for him. Either God's wonderful, but he's not powerful, or he's powerful, but he's not wonderful. And either one is going to lead you off into some kind of terrible error. And I remember, you know, John said to me, Nathan's just just completely torn up with the question of why. And I said, what did you tell him? And he said, I just told them. The only thing they can do right now is worship. Just worship. Just make a choice to worship. Because it refocuses us on who God is. Despite our circumstances. I know it sounds a little crazy. How can I believe that God's really loving when he hasn't answered my prayer? But when we refocus ourselves in God and we come into his presence, his presence is enough to make our questions tolerable, our not knowing tolerable. His presence is enough. But you can't get there until you set the questions aside. Does that make any sense? So they chose to give thanks. Now, the question popped into my head. This is God's will for us. We're supposed to give thanks. Is this because he's insecure? Is he like so many sports stars and Hollywood stars that are, have to have a, an adoring entourage of psychophants around them to tell them every minute how wonderful they are? And so God just can't stand us not being thankful because it makes them feel insecure. Is he so proud and set on his own glory that that, uh, without our thanksgiving, he's incomplete? Or could thanksgiving, in the face of unanswered questions and suffering, could it be something that's actually good for us? Could it be for our own good that he tells us to do this? And I got to thinking, knowing God, how he's been in my life. He's always a win-win God. I find out that when he tells me to do something I really don't want to do, it ends up always being for my own good. And when I do it, I find I prosper because I did it. And I start to think, he's really smart. Tricky, but smart. He's always getting me to do something, you know, kind of hints at it and kind of you know, and really, with me, he doesn't command very often. He just asks really good questions, and he kind of hints. And then something gets to work inside of me, and I end up giving in and doing the right thing. And then I discover, wow, the right thing was fantastic. Boy, did that ever work out well for me. I thought he was pushing me around, and all he was, all he was doing was pushing me into a blessing. Maybe Thanksgiving is good for us. Maybe Thanksgiving is good for the people we love. Maybe Thanksgiving is good for our families. Here's what a doctor said, head of the Division of Biological Psychology at Duke University Medical Center. It's a a good school. If thankfulness were a drug, it would be the world's best-selling product with a health maintenance indication for every major organ system. This person's not a Christian. They're just observing what they're observing. <clears throat> What's the opposite of Thanksgiving? And don't say Easter. <laughs> not talking about the holiday. I'm talking about Thanksgiving. Like doing it. What's the opposite of Thanksgiving? Complaining. Bitterness, complaining, whining. Now, this is interesting, guys. I did some research on the effects of complaining in our lives. And science has recently turned, medical science has recently turned its attention, not merely to thanksgiving on the one hand and its beneficial effects, but whining and complaining on the other hand and its detrimental effects. And here is a recent study. And the findings are consistent with everything the Bible said for thousands of years. Recent study subjected a control group to consistent complaining from various people. Now, the control group weren't the complainers. They were people absorbing the complainers, the complaints of others. So they they injected their life with complaints. And they did it in a very systematic way and very careful way so the plain, complaints were the same for all of the control subjects and they came at the same time of the day and they came through emails and telephone calls and various forms of social media so that they could really control the kind of complaints that they were bombarding this control group with. The complaints were measured in doses, email, face-to-face meetings, and other social media. The complaints came at predetermined times throughout the day. The effect of hearing this complaining was measured by taking daily blood pressure and cortisol measurements in the morning and at night. Cortisol is the hormone the body produces when the body is under stress. So now you've got two major indications of how the body is responding, not to your own complaining, but merely hearing the complaints of others. And what did they find? <clears throat> Analysis of the data revealed a significant Positive correlation between overall crabbiness of others and blood pressure levels. The same held true for cortisol levels. Now, they measured the levels of cortisol and blood pressure in people that complained themselves. So there's two kinds of complaining when you do it and when other people do it. Which is worse for you? No. No. It's not when you do it. It's when you absorb the secondhand smoke of other complainers. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It's actually harder on the people around you, your family, your kids, your wife, your husband, your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your co-workers. It's actually harder on them to listen to you, crab. It kills pastors. Yeah. Yes, it destroys us. Uh, I used to be six feet tall and I had thick hair. That's not funny. I was six feet tall and I did have thick hair. And I was and I used to tell the truth. (laughs) And I was handsome now we won't go that far. Interestingly, listening to others complain was even worse than the effects of personal complaining. High blood pressure is bad, but high cortisol levels are even more destructive. Here's the negative effects of high cortisol levels. Impaired cognitive performance. It will make you stupid. Suppressed thyroid functions. It will make you weak. Blood sugar imbalances such as hyperglycemia. Decreased bone density. Decrease in muscle mass tissue. Lowered immunity and inflammatory responses in the body. Slowed wound healing and other health consequences. Chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. These things are pretty serious. This is what it does to you, absorbing the criticism, not criticism, the complaining of people around you. And this is complaining not about you. Or issues in your life, or your, it's not dumping on you about how you're the cause of their problems, it's just people whining on about their problems. Now listen, it isn't just bad for your emotional, I mean, for your physical health, it's also bad for your emotional health. What do you do when? You have someone in your life who is a chronic complainer. Let's just be honest. Let's forget Jesus for a minute. And our Christian faith. What do you do when you have someone in your life who is a chronic complainer? Hmm? You avoid them. Don't you? Don't you try to get away from people who complain all the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Add their joy robbers. Here's the truth. People will listen to your complaints out of love, but they'll not do it habitually. Everyone has a certain ability to absorb the complaining of others. But it's limited. It's not infinite. We're not God. We can only take so much before we say, depart from me, thou whining individual. Right? Right? So, when you are a chronic complainer, you drive people away from you. Wives, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, children, are you listening? The greatest support you have are your families and your friendships, and when you whine and complain habitually, you cut yourself off from the greatest source of your own support. It's crazy behavior. The sad truth is this complaining in and of itself brings more to complain about. Isn't that an irony? Just the complaining brings more to complain about because of its negative effects. Often the result of complaining is worse than what you started complaining about. Hello? It's an evil snowball. It just gets bigger and bigger. The complaining is often worse than the thing you started complaining about. And isn't that just great for the devil? Doesn't he sit back and just chuckle? What a brilliant trap. So when God says, you should practice thanksgiving in all situations, I suppose he's a little tired of listening to the complaining too. Fortunately, he's infinitely healthy, so it's not making him sick. It's just making him want to stop listening. But that's not my point. When he tells us to give thanks in all things, it's for our own good and for the good of the people that we love. It brings health to give thanks. It stops the vicious circle of complaining. Well, you could easily reach the conclusion at this point that there's no room in God's world for complaining. And this isn't true. There is room in God's world for complaining, but it's got to be done the right way. God is accepting of our sorrow and complaints, but he wants us to do it the right way. And he's given us a model of how to complain, and he's even given us a complaint form to use when we complain. Isn't he practical? No, sir, you think I'm kidding. I'm not. He's actually given us a complaint form of how to do it and do it well so we can get the most out of our complaints. Seriously. Can anyone think of what the complaint form is? Yes. There are these things. See, if you study the Psalms, there's several forms of literature there. There's different kinds of Psalms. They break down... Into categories. Now, the Psalms of Thanksgiving versus the Songs of Lament. Which is the bigger category? Lament. Lament, the Songs of Complaining, the Psalms of Complaining are bigger than any other category of Psalm. They're the biggest category of songs. There's between 65 and 67 of them, depending upon how you categorize. What a practical God we have built into the liturgy, built into the worship liturgy of the children of Israel, which is to become a model for how we interact with God, is built bitching. Built bitching, it's alliteration. He built bilching beautifully. Anyway, I just said that to annoy some of you. Press a few religious buttons and find out who's going to leave the church next. I'm on cold medication. I don't care. There's no better feeling than being up here and not caring. It's fantastic. It Sets you free. You should try it sometime. So we have this liturgy of complaining, which is OK, which he fixed and created and said, here's the way to do it right. They give us a way to deal with our complaints constructively but yet with emotional integrity. Because pretending that you're not in trouble is not true. It's a denial of truth. You have, you have a real problem. You're in the middle of a real crisis. Your negative emotions are real. If you don't deal with them, they'll deal with you. So somehow they've got to be expressed. But they've got to be expressed the right way. And you can constructively complain. Who's the best example of this in the Psalms? David. Did David have anything to complain about? My question is, did David have anything not to complain about? Good Lord, some, some prophet says you're going to be king of Israel, and the next thing you know you're running from your life and you're living in caves with a bunch of losing, whining, complaining debtors. Guys as equally as in trouble as yourself, and this goes on not for a few months, it goes on for years. And you're not paranoid when they really are trying to kill you. It's not paranoia he wakes up in the morning with, it's reality. So we got one of the best models of a guy who has every right to fall into self-pity, who chooses to handle it the right way, and we end up the beneficiaries of his experience. Running from a king and his armies who have only one goal, his death. Here's David's formula for how to write a good complaint form. Now, number one. How does every one of those psalms of lament start? How does it start? Doesn't start positive, does it? No, it starts with... This is who I am. This is where I am. Oh, God, where are you? Okay? This is who I am, where I am, and where, by the way, are you? Okay? So, number one, it has integrity. He starts with the truth. He starts with his real situation. So he's not denying anything. So all the is coming up. All the nastiness is coming up. All the frustration is coming up. All the recitation of the truth is being expressed. This is a good thing. You need to do this. If you don't do this, a part of you is not integral. It isn't telling the truth. You're pretending something. And pretending is always bad. Because it's not honest. Our God is truth. In him, there is no shadow of darkness. There is no turning. He is only truthfulness. He can only relate to you on the basis of your truthfulness. He cannot relate to you when you are keeping things hidden. The things you keep hidden from him, he doesn't touch. Do you understand? You can only be as healthy as you are honest with him. If you're not honest with him, you will not get healthy in the areas in which you're hiding things. AA has a saying, you are only as sick as the secrets you keep. That should have come directly out of the Bible. I don't know why someone didn't say that. Because it's the truth. Our health requires that we be real about our circumstances. So he starts with the recitation. He doesn't deny any present negative reality. He pours it out. He begins with the truth of his dire situation. And he holds nothing back. And God listens lovingly. God doesn't say, get this over with as soon as you can. Because I can't stand this. It's creeping me out. You're really annoying me right now. God listens lovingly. So he pours out his circumstances. Number one. Number two, he pours out an honest expression of his negative emotions. Because it's not enough just to talk about how bad the situation is. You need to talk about your feelings. You need to be able to tell him, this is how I feel about my negative situation. And you know what one of the number one feelings is? When you're, in, when you're a Christian and you're in a bad situation, you're mad at God. How could you let this happen to me? What are you trying to do? That's part of the where are you? <laughs> you know, I'm here and I'm in pain. Where are you? You're not really asking where he is. You're asking why he hasn't done anything yet. That's what you're really saying. And he listens lovingly. He knows you're disappointed. He knows you're frustrated. He feels everything you're feeling. He gets it. And he's not judging. He's listening. So now he's been honest about his situation. He's been honest about his emotions. Now what does he do? What's the next thing that he does? It begins to change. The focus of his prayers begin to change. He starts to look at who God is and he starts to look at the goodness of God. And he usually does this historically. He looks back at his life and he says, wow, I'm still alive. That nut job Saul has been chasing me with a psychotic rage and his entire army trying to kill me, and I'm still alive. Wow. Man, you've been uh, really good to me. Honestly, guys, I really want you to be honest in this next question I'm going to ask you. And it's okay if the answer is no. But ask yourself, as you look back at your life, Has he been good to you? Has he been good to you? Were there times that you thought that he failed you? Yes. But once you were through them and afterwards, did you return to believing he was good good to you? Is there anyone here that can't say he was good to me? But when we're in a present crisis, we have to remind ourselves of a past faithfulness. If we can't look back and see a past faithfulness, we'll only judge him in the present circumstance. And it's not fair to judge God in merely the present circumstance. Right? He has a history with you. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves of his history with us, or we'll just be complainers, ingrateful. What have you done for me lately? He turns his attention to the goodness of God and his unfailing love. He remembers the great things God has already done. He reminds himself of who God has been for him. Your present emotional reality will change within minutes as you begin to look at the history that you have with God and how just amazingly kind and gentle and patient I'm talking about me now. Kind and gentle and patient and long suffering. I mean, he's just. (laughs) I'm amazed that I get to do what I get to do in his world because I don't deserve it. He's wonderful, it's amazing. So he looks at those things and he he writes them down on a piece of paper. He sits and writes a letter to God and a poem and he talks about the past. And then number four, and this is where it gets important. He makes a choice to put his present and future hope in God and God alone. I am not going to be able to get myself out of this mess, Lord. And I'm not sure I even want to, because if I could get myself out of this mess, I'd just end up taking the credit for it. And I know that would corrupt my soul. So you know what, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And it's really hard right now, Lord, to trust you because my circumstances are all messed up. So it's a choice to trust you. I'm making a choice right now, Lord, to trust you in my present, my future. I'm making a choice to trust you. And he ends by making a statement about trusting in the goodness of God. You remember those songs of lament. There's always one word that appears. After all the reality of the emotional pain in the situation, he uses a three-letter word, but, but you, Lord, but you, Lord dot, dot, dot. But you, Lord, have been this for me. You've been this for me. You've been this for me. You've been this for my family. You've been this for my wife. You've been this for my husband. You've been this for my kids. You've been this for us as a community. But, Lord, this is what you have been. Therefore, this will be what you will be. And I am going to put my trust in you in this present situation, come hell or high water. I am going to trust you. And the minute you make the choice to trust, his peace begins to manifest. And once you're in contact with his peace, the circumstances of your present moment have not changed yet. But all of the psychological, spiritual, emotional components of your present situation are already changing in that moment. Because peace is coming. And with peace, you can survive anything. Am I telling you the truth? Have you experienced this? You know you have. Here's the bottom line, guys. We need to... One time when I was a young lawyer, I think I told you about this, but I was a young lawyer and the head of our litigation department left the firm and they made me the head of the litigation department. Mark, I'd been there a year, and they made me the head of the litigation department. I lived in absolute terror. I'm not, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. I had anxiety attacks in the morning in my back room while trying to pray that were so bad, I was in the fetal position on the floor, afraid to leave the house. I mean, it was horrible. I lived in a constant fear of screwing up and messing up some client's life and being sued and losing my license and losing my means and losing my reputation and everything. And I remember I was in the middle of an anxiety attack in the back while I was praying on the floor. I was calling out to God in this overwhelming fear And he spoke to me in my head, and he said, what's the worst thing that could happen? Tell me right now. What's the worst thing that could happen? And I stopped for a second. I said, okay, um, I would make a really serious mistake, and I would shame the firm, and I would shame myself, and I would be sued, and I would be disbarred, and I would lose my livelihood, and I would lose a lot of my friends, and I would lose my home, and I would have nothing. And then he spoke to me, and he said, and then where would you be? And when he said that, my eyes were closed, and I had a vision of these two huge hands, and I saw myself lying in the palms of these big, huge hands. And I said, I would be in your hands. And he said, and that's where you are right now. And the peace just, the fear left. And I thought, my bottom line, my worst case scenario in my life is this. I'm in his hands. That's my bottom line. I'm in his hands. We Christians are the most fortunate people in the world. Our worst case present scenario is better than everyone else's best case eternal scenario. Allow me to repeat that. Our worst case present scenario is better than everyone else's Best case, eternal scenario. The worst thing that can happen to us now is that we suffer a lot and die. Well, then what? We're going to heaven to spend eternity with the source of perfect love. We experience little bits of love in life and we think it's the best thing in the world. We fall in love and get engaged, and we walk on air like an idiot. In fact, (laughs) let me show you the after picture. (laughs) We experience a little bit of love, and we think this is the best thing in the world. People, we're going to a place where all it is is love, where we are in the presence of perfect, infinite love. We will never experience pain, loneliness, or loss again. We will be unable to remember the negative feelings we once thought were reality. We will be unable to remember the negative feelings we once thought were reality. We won't be able to remember them. We will remember having these feelings, but we will, we will be unable to experience them even through our memory. Seriously. There was a period in my life, it was the darkest time, I experienced the despair and depression that I lived with for about six years. It had become my normal reality. I had forgotten what it was not to be depressed. I I mean, I knew factually there was a time when I was happy, but I couldn't remember what happiness felt like. Seriously. I forgot what happiness felt like. I forgot what it was like not to be depressed. And one day... God told me it's not always going to be like this. And I said, yes, it is. It's impossible for me to be happy again. I forgot what happiness feels like. And he said, no, no, it's not going to be like this. I'm going to remove this from you. And I actually laughed at him. I said, no, that's a sweet thought. But this is this is who I am. And about three weeks later at a meeting. An old lady prayed for me. old lady, she was about 60. (laughs) I I hate myself for what I have become. I went forward for healing because the the speaker was talking about depression and the life, brokenness in the life of a leader. And he was going through and there were boxes and I ticked every single one. And then I said, if he has a ministry time, I'm going forward because he's talking about me. And as soon as he finished, he said, there are some pastors here who, he didn't even get the expression, want to quit, out of his mouth. Me and this other guy ran to the front. We were the first two people, and then it filled with broken leaders. If you ever want to do well in a ministry time, just say there's a bunch of pastors here who are depressed and want to quit. You'll fill the front. Because <laughs> they listen to people complaining all the time. So I'm standing there, you know, like, I don't know why I'm here. I made a choice to come forward, but this is pointless. And this old lady comes up, and she's got this little old lady smile and the old lady hair. And I'm like this, and and she puts a finger in the palms of both hands. And I think, what the, are you doing? (laughs) This is not how to pray. I have taught prayer courses. I do altar ministry. All of a sudden. She starts to pray, and this electricity starts going through my body, and I'm being electrocuted. I'm bouncing with this power, thinking, oh, man, this is just like the first time I felt this 15 or 20 years ago. Holy smokes, this is God. This is crazy. And I'm just, like, reflecting on it, and it lasted, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes. Not, you know, it seems like 20 minutes probably like five or six minutes. I'm just getting fried. And when... All of a sudden it stops, it just stops, and I open my eyes, and she's got this big grin in her face like, look what I did to you. And then she pulls her fingers off, she doesn't say a word, she just walks away. No counsel, no post, you know, healing prescription. No, you should read the Bible more, or why don't you get a new life, you loser. She had no wisdom at all, she just happily walked away. And I stood there, and I thought... I don't feel pain inside. I I don't feel I don't feel any pain inside. It's gone. It's gone. That was nineteen ninety six. Nineteen ninety six. I have not felt that pain since that morning before she prayed. It's gone. I mean, my native reality was gone. And it has not come back. God is powerful and he's loving. Why did I have to go through six years? I don't know. But you know what? I don't want to know. I'm happy to worship him. That's enough. You are going to heaven, and in heaven you will be unable to remember any of the negative emotions you had in your life. You will be in the presence of perfect joy and perfect love, and that's all you will ever know. That's all you will ever know. You will be able to remember that some bad things happened to you in your time on earth. But you will not be able to connect with those things. Because they cannot survive in the presence of perfect love and perfect joy. They're factual, but they have no significance whatsoever. Your eternal bottom line is better than everybody else's best-case scenario. So can we find something to be thankful for in every situation? Yeah, we can be thankful for that. And it makes our negative situation insignificant. Not unreal. It's real. It hurts. But it does not have the significance Satan wants it to have. Because we live in a greater reality. Okay? We will always have a reason to be thankful, listen, because we have him. He is our bottom line. Our circumstances are not our bottom line. He is our bottom line. And can you always worship no matter what? Yes, because he is the reward. Answered prayers in the Christian life are not the reward. Knowing him is the reward. And no matter what the circumstance, you can always know him. Knowing him is heaven. Heaven is here now. He's all around us. Heaven is Jesus. It starts now and it goes into nothing but perfect clarity forever. We have always a reason to be thankful. Because nothing can remove you from the love of Jesus. Nor powers, nor principalities, nor life, nor death, nor suffering. Nothing can take you away from him. So we will always have a reason to be thankful. Okay? Now let's apply this. Let's. It's a, not a good thing to hear the truth and not apply it as soon as you can. If you hear the truth and you walk out and don't apply it, The birds of the air come and pick it up and take it away. And the significance of the experience of that truth is taken from you. So let's just take a minute and allow the Holy Spirit to have some access to our hearts and minds and emotions so that we can get the maximum out of this truth, okay? So let's close our eyes. And I'm going to ask him what to do, and he'll direct us. The Lord just spoke to me and he said, have them bring their worst circumstance to me right now. And the picture I saw was you're able to take your worst circumstance and your most negative emotions out from your heart with your hands and hold, and I know it's a bit of a weird image, but hold your circumstances, the negative circumstances, and hold the negative emotions that you can identify and name. I feel this. This is how I feel. This is why I felt this way. That you can scoop those things up and you can show them to Him because He's standing in front of you. He's just standing waiting in front of you. And you can identify your own psalm of lament and you can say, this is the situation that I'm in. This is what's driving me crazy. This is how I feel about it. And express it to him. Just do it. Show it to him and express it to him honestly.